24, Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. We have reached the end uh, of this wonderful gospel book. Uh, It's been my desire to preach through Luke for a long time. It's a great blessing for me to have done so. I I, I approach the end almost with a bit of uh, regret that, that perhaps maybe we could have lengthened our time in Luke's gospel. I've heard that uh, one preacher has stretched his for, I think, about eight years. Um, I, I want to make it through God's Word to you and uh, for this congregation and do so in a relatively timely way. Uh, we've had a delightful time uh, delving into Luke's Gospel, uh, preaching through. There's much, much more that could have been said. Uh, we're grateful for it, but we have reached the end in these last few verses, verses 50 through 53. I remind you, this is God's holy inerrant and infallible word. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. Now let's pray. Our Lord God, we ask your blessing upon this portion of your word. We are grateful, Lord, for it, and we ask that you would help us and open that word to us this morning, that we might behold great things from it, and that our hearts might leap with joy and thanksgiving, and that our love for Christ would be burnished and growing, and we ask it in his name. Amen. You know, it it occurs to me that Luke begins and ends in the same place. Uh, In the very beginning, Zechariah is in the temple. He is offering uh, incense in the house of the Lord. And and the disciples uh, here at the end are in the temple blessing God with great joy, exceeding joy. Uh, Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Simeon, and Anna, and Mary are in that Uh, in that first chapter, and all of them are in varying ways praying for, crying out, and and seeking that God would provide the Messiah, that they, in the course of their time, in their temporal lives, they would see and behold the salvation of God in the Messiah of God. And God has spoken to Simeon and told him that he would see that day in Anna. And Zechariah now, he goes in on that temple morning, Uh, And there he is offering incense, and there is an angelic being, an angel of the Lord. And he was frightened. And the angel of the Lord said uh, that indeed uh, he would be given a son, uh, and that son would be one whose voice is as one crying in the wilderness. Well, we hear Mary's song, the Magnificat, and Elizabeth's song, and Simeon and Anna pray and sing and rejoice and Zechariah rejoicing ultimately when his voice comes back. And here at the end of this gospel account, we hear the disciples worshiping and crying out in praise and thanksgiving to God. This, this, this account, at least this first volume of Luke's account, you remember that Acts is Luke's volume two. But it begins and ends in the same way, rejoicing and crying out for salvation or in thanksgiving for that salvation and entering into the temple of the the Lord and worshiping him. Well, the body of Luke's gospel ultimately records and illustrates God's provision of that salvation. And this this ending is fitting, pardon me, 
and that the disciples have finally come to a position where they have understood the work and the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've had recent conversations, even in chapter 18, verses uh, 31 through 34, uh, Jesus has recounted for them uh, yet again that he would uh, that he was going to die, and uh, he said this, For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, uh, and will be mocked and mistreated and spat upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Note the attitude, or note the response of the disciples, but the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. There is, there is a significant portion of what they believe about Jesus, even though they are believers, that they misunderstand and have not, have not yet come to grasp. But here at the end, they do. That's why there's sadness in that upper room when he told them for the third time that he was going to die and be taken from them. Here at the end, they are rejoicing because they understand the significance of of what's taking place. The change in their in their countenance, their perspective, the change from sadness to exceeding joy was due to their understanding of the significance of Christ and of the salvation of what He, in fact, has brought about. But also I think they understand the significance of His ascension. And that's what we see in these few verses. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to affirm the facts of Christ's ascension, uh, beginning with affirming the truth of his actual and physical resurrection. And then we're going to make some application concerning what his ascension really leaves for us as it means for us as believers today. Do you remember in that moment uh, post resurrection, the Lord Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene and he said, Mary. Don't touch me. Touch me not, he said, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father and to my God and to your God. Mary wants to touch and lay hold of him. And she has. She has laid hold of a physical person. You cannot lay hold of an apparition or a spirit. You can't lay hold of a vision. But you can lay hold of real flesh. And Luke records that for us purposefully. Matthew also helps us to see uh, that Christ was actually and physically raised and that in fact he was actually and physically ascended. Matthew 28 verse 9, Jesus met the woman after the angel had spoken with them and he told them to go and tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee. And they fell on their faces and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. You, you can't lay hold of the feet of an apparition. You lay hold of the feet of an actual person who has been physically, actually, and really raised. In Revelation 22.8, John is giving his account of what he, has been, what he has been given by way of privilege of seeing of the kingdom of God. And he says, he, I, he heard and saw these things. And he said, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown me these things. But he said to me, do not do that, for I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And so this actual person who was raised from the dead 
who is living, breathing, and who has ascended physically into heaven is the only being who is worthy of worship. He is God. And here in this passage, we see the disciples as he's parting from them and carried up into heaven. He's, he's, as he's blessing them, they worship him and they are not rebuked. There's earlier sections, even in the Gospels, where Thomas must touch the hands of Christ and put his fingers in his wounds, in his hands and feet and in his side in order that he might believe. There are many other instances, even where Jesus took and ate a piece of fish, a broiled piece of fish, so that he could show them that he was not an apparition or a vision because they were afraid when he appeared in that upper room. They were terrified in verse 43 of chapter 24. Well, because Jesus was physically raised, he must also be physically uh, exalted to heaven. And so he is. It says in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, in Luke's second second, uh, volume, he has written both volumes for a faithful account to his, his benefactor, Theophilus, This is what he said. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So a physical resurrection, a physical ascension bodily of the Lord Jesus Christ, not a body to be left uh, left behind that somehow in this body snatching idea, Jesus, his spirit ascends and his body is remained. No, he was not buried. There is no grave with Jesus's name on it. And if there is, it's false. That has been sealed and in which there is a body. No, Jesus is a bodily ascended to heaven and he was taken, Jesus is physically in the immediate presence of the Father, sitting at the right hand of God the Father this very day. So why do we affirm the ascension of Jesus Christ? Why do we affirm the necessity of the ascension of the Lord? Why do we affirm the importance of this fact? I'll tell you, if Jesus is not physically ascended, if he was not physically exalted to the right hand of God the Father, you are without hope, to use Paul's words relating to resurrection, you are without hope, your salvation has not been fully and completely brought to effect. And in fact, your atonement has not been made, nor accepted, nor declared to be accepted by God the Father. You are left without ruler, without king, without sovereign, exalted, and without the session of the Lord Jesus Christ, distributing gifts to his people, caring for his church, sending forth his Holy Spirit, so much depends upon the ascension of the Lord. Let's look at some reasons for it. Firstly, Jesus' physical resurrection from the grave and ascension up into heaven foreshadows Christ's triumphant physical return. What did the angels say to the to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 and following? Uh, it was necessary that he ascend, and you need to remember this because there's going to come a day 
that when you see him return, he will return in the same way in which you saw him ascend. So the ascension of Christ speaks to the necessity and, and the certainty that Jesus Christ is coming again. Because he has ascended, he is coming. Because he has been exalted, he will come to take his own home with him. The whole world will see Jesus exalted. And all the whole world will see Jesus lifted up, coming in power and glory. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 and 11 through, uh, shows this. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that day is coming because of the absolute certainty in the first-hand account and the first-hand eyewitnesses of those who saw him ascend. Because he has ascended, he is coming again. And we can see it and behold that coming in his ascension. In the same way in which he was exalted and ascended to heaven, he will return and we will see him as he is. Secondly, Christ is exalted and put forth as the one to whom worship is due in his ascension. Who can ascend to be with the Father but God? Who can be in the presence of God but God the Son? Who can be present with, in all of its glory and among, in the Godhead, returning to his place of glory and of prominence and his rightful place, be given the keys of the kingdom and be received by the Father as a well-pleasing sacrifice, except for the eternal Son of God. And so Christ in his ascension displays the pleasure of God the Father in the Son of God. God the the Father is delighted in his Son. He is glorified in his Son. And he will glorify the Son for all eternity. And so he is exalted and lifted up physically He is the one perfect Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And His ascension is an emphatic declaration that He is worthy of worship and the worship of all humanity is His entitlement because He is the perfect Son of God, the ascended Savior and the one who is on display and who is ruling at the right hand of God the Father. Further, the ascension shows us more. Thirdly, that it is a visible promise by God that of all who have been forgiven of their sins, they will one day be free of sin and all of its effects. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is received by the Father. He ascends to heaven, and therein is that promise for all who have believed in him, not only that their sins will be forgiven, have been forgiven, are forgiven, all of them in their entirety, but more than that, sin, original sin, and its effects of our being in a fallen state, both in mind and body and soul, living in a fallen world, still sinning, though forgiven, though pardoned, though redeemed in Christ and justified by by grace through faith, nonetheless we still sin. And maybe this in this new year you are struggling with that reality. 
Dear Pastor, I trust in Christ for my salvation, and yet I still struggle with sin. There are sin patterns of my life that have caused me so much consternation and I desire to be free of them. I have cried out to the Lord repeatedly to help me. And day by day, I strive against them. And yet, they still do win the victory on occasion. Even though the Lord does give me victory over them in some ways on some days. And as I continue to strive, I still continue to fail. Well, dear brother or sister, in all of your consternation and weeping and shame and struggle and trial, because Christ was ascended, there is that absolute promise for God that the day is coming when you will no longer be able to sin. And sin and its effects will no longer be felt in your mind or your body but you will be freed and you will behold the Lord without any inhibition, without any entanglement of sin, and you will see him as he is. His ascension is that emphatic declaration that he is worthy of worship, but also that one day you will be glorified. One day in your struggle with sin, though we struggle with sin in this world, you will be free of sin. You will be free of the enemy of your soul. Satan will no longer whisper into your ear and suggest disobedience against the Lord. No longer will you hear his voice, but he will be, for he will be condemned and be cast into the depths of the lake of fire. And you will not be there with him. Rather, you will be there with your Savior, redeemed and justified in Christ Jesus. And you will see the king on his throne come in glory. Fourthly, the ascension of Jesus paves the way for him to go and prepare a place for you. Didn't he tell his disciples that in John 14? I I, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you will be also. It was necessary that Jesus ascend to heaven so that he can prepare a place for you and for me, so that one day at the end of all things we will be with the Lord. Isn't that a glorious promise? Isn't that a glorious thing to look forward to? The day when we will be in the presence of the Lord. And shouldn't we be working in such a way that anticipates that day? It is the great consolation of the Christian that one day we will be with him where he is. It is the continuing and eternal comfort of our soul that one day we will be with the Lord. No loved one can come with us through this life. No one can enter into death with us. No one can do anything that will in any way ease our passing from this world except for our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be with us in our death and who will be waiting when we, our spirit and our soul ascends to him. Fifthly, the ascension of Christ verifies Christ's claims as the Son of God. 
And it verifies his claims of equality with the Father. You remember when he spoke in the seven I am statements in John's gospel. I am the the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the living water. I am the vine. You are the branches. In all of those I am statements, he is saying... I am God. He is declaring that He has always been. He always will be. He is the eternal God. He is declaring that He is the eternal Son of God. And when He is questioned by the Pharisees, doesn't He affirm that He is, in fact, very God of very God? As He says, I and the Father are one. When He was told by His disciples, asked by His disciples, will you let us see the Father? And He says, if you have seen Me, You have seen the Father. God would never cause to ascend and to be exalted one whose claims are false. He would never cause someone who is only seemingly so or or someone upon whom uh, the Spirit of God has come. He would never cause that person physically to ascend unless... He is both the perfect God and man. God's perfect provision of salvation. The Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And unless he did that physically, bodily, on the cross, Christ is verified in his claims that he is the Son of God, equal with the Father. Sixthly, it was good that he ascended also in this sense that his ascension was necessary and that his work would continue as he sends forth his Holy Spirit. Didn't he tell his disciples in John chapters 14 through 16? He went on about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he tells his disciples as they are saddened over the fact that he will be leaving. He says, no, no, it is good that I leave so that I can send forth the Holy Spirit, who will bring you all of the riches of mine and enable you to walk in me. It was necessary in his work that that he would continue as he sends forth his Holy Spirit, who comes upon us in power, working in our hearts by faith. In John chapter 16, verses 7 through 16 we see Jesus accounting the the work of the Helper, the Spirit of Truth. And He comes ten days after Jesus is ascended. After Jesus has ascended, ten days post, there is Pentecost, and all the disciples are there in the upper room, and there are tongues of fire and a loud wind, and they begin speaking in tongues, and others within the crowd hear their languages in their own Uh, In their own native language, they hear men and women speaking in those native languages, and they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't hear gibberish or nonsense. They don't hear peripheral things about governmental courses and 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 the the news of the day. They don't hear uh, words from mankind. They hear the riches of Jesus Christ spoken through the power of the Holy Spirit, such that they believe and they cry out, "How must?" How may we be saved? And Peter in his glorious sermon says, He whom you crucified, God has lifted up. And he is the Savior in whom you must believe. And they do. He comes with power and he continues to abide with us and share Christ and his benefits of salvation with us. 
in such a way that those who are at Pentecost and experience that tongue and that rushing wind, they have nothing on you. Because you too are filled with the Holy Spirit. You too are filled with the the life-giving Spirit who brings to us Jesus and all of his benefits. And ministers and administers the word of God. Seventh, the ascension of Christ, his reign and rule as king begins. We see Jesus in session, which theologians call that his session at the right hand of God the Father. Meaning he's not just sitting there and kicking up uh, and, and just gazing. He is in session. In other words, the king is reigning and active in his rule. Jesus doesn't just sit there and his enemies are made a footstool and he does nothing. No, he is reigning as Lord and King. This world is in his hands. You are the apple of his eye and he watches over you. And he reigns over all your enemies and mine and he will subject them all to himself one day. He has ascended and he is enthroned on high. What did Stephen see? Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he, was, when he was stoned to death, what did he do? What did he see? He said, I behold Jesus, the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God the Father. And of course they stoned him for that. The Apostle Peter reflects on Jesus' ascension and resurrection and, and he brings Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to bear in his first letter. And he tells us that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Indeed, he was because he is Lord and King. And into his hands, the kingdom has been handed. Eighth benefit, the eighth benefit by which we benefit from the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is simply that Christ's ascension signals God's receiving of all redeemed persons, redeemed in and by Christ and in his righteousness, who are in union with Christ, in him and with him. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You are already in Christ. And by virtue of your faith in Christ you are in union with Christ because of his righteousness and his perfect atonement for your sins and of your justification by faith through grace and because you have been redeemed by his blood. And if you are in union with him, you are, though living in this world, elevated to him such that you are already in part in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. For you are near to his heart He is holding you in his hands and nothing can ever cause you to be lost or taken from his grip. You're elevated to heaven through him 
And because of your identification with him, your union with him, you will most certainly be with him for all eternity because of his ascension. And nothing can change that. Romans chapter 8, And I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor disease nor any other thing can keep you from the love of God in Christ Jesus or separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Ninth reason why the ascension of Christ benefits you and what it means to the believer. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted him at his right hand as Lord and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Because Christ ascended, the forgiveness of sins is offered to all who believe. In other words, because Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, the gospel means what it means and is granted to all who believe. Because Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, there is an offer made to all who are sin, who are conscious of their sin in this life. That if you turn in faith to Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven and you will have everlasting life through Him. His ascension opens the way of receiving salvation through repentance and forgiveness of sins. Nothing's changed. Repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. That message will never change because Christ is at the right hand of God the Father and he will not abandon that place. When we are discouraged, when we think, well, I've certainly been sinned in such a way that God could not love me still. We need to remember that we are in the grasp of our Savior, who is in heaven, who has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and that nothing can take you out of his grasp. And more than that, when we are discouraged about our evangelistic efforts, when we have shared the faith and we have invited people to church, and we're tired of them not coming, and we're, we're, we're discouraged and we're inclined to give up, Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. He is in session as the King. And no evangelistic effort is useless, pointless, fruitless. The way of salvation is open to all who would believe. And Christ is still saving men and women, boys and girls, to the glory of God. You and I should be therefore active in inviting people to come to the church, active in sharing the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, active in sharing the gospel, displaying the gospel, being physically with words, not without, but with words, that gospel message to the world in which we live. Christ is still saving, saving souls and seeking the lost. There are two more. Number 10, the reason for why the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact significant in the life of the believer and that it means a great deal to us and of its significant that significance that in the life of the believer. Jesus' ascension is the consolation of every suffering child of God. Because Christ is raised, because he was ascended, 
We are consoled in our suffering. And this is why, according to Acts chapter 7, verse 55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. This is Stephen, who I referenced a moment ago. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen, in a moment of grave suffering, when he is being pelted with rocks intended to kill him, not hurt or maim, but kill, even in the midst of it all, as he is being pelted, he opens his eyes and Jesus Christ appears to him in that moment and he stands at the right hand of God the Father, reaching out his hand to his child, consoling him in his moment of suffering and of death. I don't necessarily believe that each and every one of us will see a vision of Christ when we die. But I will tell you that on the other side of the grave, you will see your Savior. That part is certain. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the believer who dies, the death of his saints is precious in his sight. And the Lord Jesus has removed the sting of death. And when we die, we will be with the Lord. We see it observed throughout Scripture that when one dies, one is immediately in the presence of the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is our, his ascension is our consolation. That when we suffer and when we struggle, he is ascended and he is exalted. And we will see him Even as our life ebbs, we will see the glory of the Son, knowing that our Savior is enthroned on high. And if he is enthroned on high, death can hold no further sting for those who believe in him. We are consoled in Jesus Christ. We are consoled in his ascension. Because he has ascended to the Father, so too will we. Lastly, God is one with man. God is one with man. The Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And he did so bodily. What's so significant about that? Except that the Lord Jesus in his resurrected body, in perfection, sits and has residency at the right hand of God the Father. In other words, there is the perfect God-man at the right hand of God this very day. Not just the Spirit of the Son, but God, the Son of God, in bodily form at the right hand of God the Father. At the right hand of the Father is the perfect God-man. And because of that, God's dwelling place is with man. He has tabernacled in and with us. And God's dwelling place is with you and with me. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, is at the right hand of God the Father. The perfect son of God, the God-man, the Savior of the world, is at the right hand of God the Father. He was raised bodily, he ascended bodily, and he is in session bodily at the right hand of God. There is a last note in this passage, and that is just simply this. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands.
and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I think it's extraordinary that God, the Son of God, lifts up his hands and blesses his disciples. If you look in the first chapters of Acts, when God created man, uh, pardon me, Genesis, I don't know why I said Acts, but Genesis. God creates man, and what does he do? He lifts up Adam, breathes life into his nostrils, and God created man, male and female, and what did he do? He blessed them. He blessed them. Now, I'm not sure that we are able to fully comprehend the significance of the blessing of God. But I believe that we can and should dwell richly upon this idea, upon this reality, that God has blessed his people. God blessed Adam and Eve. God blessed his disciples. And we're told repeatedly throughout Scripture, especially in Ephesians chapter 1, that God continues to bless his people. Do you understand that God has blessed you? In other words, he has pronounced over you his blessing, such that no matter what may take place and and no matter what circumstances we may endure, the truth is that God's blessing is always and continually upon us. You are never out from under, nor escaped from, nor obscured against God's blessing. Jesus blesses his own. Salvation full and free, accomplished and verified, proclaimed in the church, Jesus continues to bless his own. And he causes his blessing, as we sing in the wonderful Christmas hymn, he causes his blessing to spread as far as the curse is found. So I encourage you, if, if you if you this morning have experienced the curse, and indeed every human being has, and you're longing for the blessing of God, He causes His blessing to spread as far as the curse is found. Come to Jesus in faith, and Christ will in fact bless your life and cause your life to be a blessing. What a wonderful Savior who blesses His people who causes his blessing to be found as far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we are thankful for your blessing. Your blessing is your pronouncement of mercy and of grace, of peace. Your blessing is promise, promise of tenderness, of care, of providence by God for your own people. Blessing is the benedictory promises of Scripture, of you, God, turning your face toward us, being gracious to us, causing your countenance to be lifted up and placed upon us, and peace to be declared over us. Lord, your blessing is astounding. We can scarce take it in. To be blessed by God. Well, Lord, we lightly say, oh, I am blessed. And usually what we mean by that is that we've experienced kind providences. We've experienced giving and we've experienced something of 
your gracious provision. But Lord, we ought to be able to say that in every circumstance. Because we are blessed with a Savior who has been raised physically and who ascended bodily into the, the deepest heavens to be in the very throne room of God and to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Oh Lord, we thank you for your blessing. We could ask for nothing more. And yet you invite us to. Because you are a lavish, loving God. You're a God who pours out blessings so that our cup runs over. Oh Lord, bless your people. Bless your church. Bless the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless your gospel in this new year. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.